I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of my uh, favorite books of the season is All Things Move, Learning to Look in the Sistine Chapel at Once. It's about its author Jeannie Marshall's relationship with the work of Michelangelo, artwork she'd uh, avoided despite having moved to Rome. At another, after finally seeing the fresco, she's able to work through how to view this art, what her relationship to it is, and how much of faith and spirituality is part of the work. We um, also get a sense of what it's like living in the Italian capital, a city much older than the Toronto she grew up in. Uh, How is daily life affected by the uh, aging infrastructure and history all around? And at its heart, the book is about art and its place in one's life, how we really do need art. Jeannie Marshall joins me now, and I'll ask her about her ongoing relationship with art and her own family. We'll we'll talk about how well-timed the book is, considering we've moved into a new stage of the pandemic, just in Michelangelo's time, uh, when he returned to paint more of the Sistine Chapel after a plague and having witnessed death and fleeing. Uh, Jeannie Marshall has lived in Italy with uh, her family for over 20 years now. Her previous book was Outside the Box, Why Our Children Need Real Food, Not Food Products. She's a journalist and contributes to Maclean's and The Walrus and has appeared in The Common, Brick, Literary Review of Canada, and Literary Mama. She was a staff features writer at the National Post. This uh, new book is published by Biblioasis. She joined me from Rome, Italy this past weekend. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Jeannie Marshall. Ms. Marshall, good morning. Hi, good morning, or good evening for me, I guess it is. I guess it's good evening in, in Rome there. How long have you been living in Rome? Well, this year it's, uh, it's 21 years, yeah. which is shocking, just shocking to me, because when I got to 10 years, that seemed like that was the, the big marker, and then suddenly the next 10 years went by, and now another one. Hey, that, that's the thing about life, isn't it? It just goes by so quickly. <laughs> um, it, it's interesting you mentioned um, the, the 10 years, because uh, as you write in the book, that it, it took you about 10 years before you got to the Sistine Chapel. Is that right? Yeah, I think maybe it was 12. I think it was 12 years, in fact, before I finally went, yeah. And so if, if people would, would go to Rome, you know, friends of yours, say, or family, and they said that they would uh, want to see the Sistine Chapel, that was not, um, you, were, you were not keen to bring them there. Is that right? That's right. And at first I, I felt like maybe it was just that, you know, there's always lineups and it's a bit uncomfortable to sure. get in. It's yeah. not a huge museum, so... Um, I, you know, I kept thinking, well, if I live here, it means I can go any time. So I kept putting it off and putting it off. And, and then it, there's a point where it becomes a little bit embarrassing to say that you really haven't seen to see it. You know? <laughs> um, and then w- w- the first time you go, as you describe it in the book, um, that experience of, of, say, being in a cramped room with other tourists, or well, pardon me, with tourists, because you're, you're, you're a local now, um, yeah, that was that left much to be desired, didn't it? Oh, it sure did. Yeah. So the very first time I went, I don't know why I chose to do this, but I went in the summer as well. So that's <laughs> the worst time because it's yeah. the most crowded. There's no air conditioning, so you first you've had to trek through this whole museum, which is filled with incredibly interesting, fascinating things, but it's not very comfortable. And then you arrive in this room, and it's just so overwhelming and so crowded and of course the images are so high they're up on the ceiling you know everything you have to look at is way up on the ceiling and it's not comfortable at all to actually try to look up so 
yeah, the first time was not a great success, I have to say. <laughs> Yeah. How, how high up, say, say if we're, we're standing on the, on the floor there, how, how high right. up are we looking, say? Well, I think it's 20 meters. And so I'm just thinking my son is a very tall young man who's about six foot four, and he's not quite two meters. Uh-huh. So it's a lot. It, you know, it's quite, it's quite a ways up there. Yeah, I was thinking, so just with your yeah. naked eye, it's not super easy to see. You know, you can see everything. You can see the detail, but it, you're straining just a little bit. Even if you were left alone in the room, you would still be straining to, to look at, at the ceiling. Yeah, I'm, um, I, I don't know how to describe it. It's a thing where I, I can't see far. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and I would think that that distance would be hard to see anything at all. Yeah, it does make it difficult. It's just a, it's a strange thing, but I think almost that the, uh, the environment that it's in, the difficulty that you have to go through to see it, some of that is also part of the allure. I think, you know, it's not easy. Like it, yes, it's been deemed a masterpiece and everything, sure. but it's also, it requires a lot of you. And you realize when you're there, it's not just requiring your patience and your attention. It's actually requiring something physical from you as well. Yeah. To be able to stand there and you know tolerate it and to look up. Yeah, the um, as you narrated in the book, um, it, it isn't an ideal um, uh, <laughs> no, sort, sort of experience either. going there. Um, but as, as as we read throughout the book, um, the experience of going back um, that that changes with each subsequent visit, doesn't it? And, and you, you oh, eventually uh, find yeah. something, don't you? I do. And to my surprise, I did, really, because I felt like I, it was a bit of a duty to go at first. And so the first couple of times were not great. The third time, the, the thing that did change the third time was that I was able to sit down because there are some benches that run around the edge of the room. Mm-hmm. They're always crowded, though. And I happened to be standing just right where someone stood up. And so I I sat down, and that allowed me to be able to look at part of the ceiling. And it's also the part, it's the part that shows Noah, and it shows the flood. And it's not easy to see that part of the ceiling no matter what, because Mm -hmm. it's a a little bit more detailed. The images are a little smaller, so it's quite complicated. It always seems like it's turned the wrong way around as well. Mm -hmm. So being able to sit down under it just let me tilt my head against the wall and actually look at it. And and because I had been reading about the Sistine Chapel as well, you know, it's already in my head, the narrative of what I'm trying to understand, that it was just kind of a moment that allowed me to go into it a little bit and forget about everybody around me and just take a look at what I was actually seeing. And that really, that, I feel like if I hadn't had that opportunity, if someone hadn't stood up and let me sit down, I probably wouldn't have gone back. Third time would have been my last. Yeah. It's fascinating how these things work out with life, aren't they? I mean, there's these happy yeah. accidents, and, and now you have a book about it because as, <laughs> through, through subsequent visits, the, you, you realize that this art essentially informs aspects of your life. Yes, and that's not something I realized at all when I first started going. Yeah. And so, um, so I know I tied in a lot of uh, elements, including the history of the period that it was being painted, um, the changes in Catholicism and also my own family and our relationship to Catholicism. And on the surface, none of that seems like it's related. 
But when you're actually looking at the paintings and trying to understand what's going on in these images, you start to realize that there's a lot more connected, you know, than I had realized that in the beginning. And also, I think everyone brings something unique to, to the experience of looking at a piece of art. And so you have to go with that. You have to assume that if, if it's bringing things up for you and you're sitting there and you're starting to think about you know, something that doesn't seem like you think, how is that related? You know, how is my childhood related to the Sistine Chapel? Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to kind of give yourself a chance and, and realize that maybe it is. And that's something that art can do, I think. Like, not making art, well, making art, I'm sure, does it as well, but yeah. not all, all of us are so talented. But just by looking at the art, that's actually something that we can we can just realize that it, it opens up something else in your brain, I think, and gives you a chance to make connections that you might not make otherwise. Yeah, as you re- recount in the book, I guess it was your grandmother had told you about the Sistine Chapel years ago, is that right? Yes, and I think I probably, you know, didn't particularly remember it. It uh-huh. was more like while I was looking at it that I started to think, oh, yeah, I do remember. I was thinking, what was, you know, why why does it somehow feel like there's something special about the Sistine Chapel, something that I need to know, like something I need to, there, there was something from the past, and I felt like someone had told me that it was important. And, of course, we all know that it's important. Yeah. But I felt like some there was more personal than that. And then I, when I thought about it, I realized it was my grandmother and that she was a devout Catholic and she showed me this image that was in a, in a book and and told me that it was this great masterpiece and it would just be such an incredible thing if you could actually see it. And I was a little kid, you know, never imagining that I would end up living in, in Rome and mm-hmm. I would be able to see it. Yeah, and then this this leads to you know uh, as, as you alluded to a moment ago, uh, unpacking things in 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 your own life. Um, you um, your, your mother's own relationship with Catholicism, um, yeah. and and how both your mother and grandmother's lives were complicated by the church. I mean, that's to put it sort of generously, if you will. Um, yeah. That that's something that yeah. you 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 think about and you work through, and I, I find that fascinating. And and I bring this up because um, um, when you move to Rome early on, um, and I guess people do this when they when they move to a city like Rome, they they sort of romanticize what it's going to be like to live there, um, yeah, all this art and culture and so forth. And 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 you say there's a moment in the book where you say that. Um, I guess you and your husband had also moved to to, to a place in Spain, and you, yes, you the found year yeah. yeah, and so you found the the art there more accessible than say in Rome because um, I guess there's so much religion that that's wrapped up in yeah, and, and so so you're 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 not religious yourself, I think, as you write in the book. Um, no, I'm not. And I'm so not. so that's I'm, why it was yeah, more accessible was... in Spain, right? Yes, I think so. You know, just you know, some of it was about the history of Spain, or some of it's even, you know, just famous works of art like um, Miro and like um, Picasso, Velázquez, and Goya. That who I, I got to understand a little bit more about their work. And we also lived not far from the um, uh, the Prado Museum, mm-hmm. and so we would go and visit more often. And it just seemed like just yeah, just so much more accessible. Whereas when I would go to visit galleries in Rome or go often to churches where so many of the 
most important paintings are still in churches. I would just feel like, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't, what does this have to do with me? And then I would think, okay, what do I need to look at? Is it brush strokes? Is it light? Is it, you know, what is mm. it? And, and I didn't, I just sort of let it wash over me until really, it really, I think it was through the Sistine Chapel that I really started to, to see that, you know, it does have something to do with me and that it is actually fascinating once you start to look into the, into Renaissance painting and into how it was made and how connected it is with the church as well, but how it also transcends all of that too. And so, so this, because your your parents and your grandmother as well, their their relationship with Catholicism was challenged. Um, did you come to some make some peace with with um, I don't know, faith is the right word, but but, but with the church itself, as, as you were uh, thinking about the art in the Sistine Chapel? I think so. I think, well, partly I didn't realize how interesting Renaissance Catholicism was, because sometimes we focus on the corruption that was happening during that time, yeah. and I, I focused on it as well, the um, practice of selling indulgences in order to, to make money for the church, that sort of thing. But there were also just these really interesting ideas that were that were swirling around in the, at the time, and I think there it was a time when you could think about faith and Christianity and what it all meant in a way that was a bit was not threatening and was open. So that I found really interesting, and I think I've always because my grandmother was a devout woman, I think I've always uh, had respect for people who have faith, and kind of wished that I did. But I feel like I have it in other ways, not not the same way that she did. But I think I do respect people who, you know, who uh, who have a religious faith of their own. And I've gotten to know more people within the Catholic Church in Italy just through various means. Because I live down the street from a monastery as well, I often chat with the uh, the priests who are there, and that has also enlarged my view of of, of what it means, and also made me realize that it's uh, it's more complicated, you know, it's more it's not a simple thing, religion. And yeah. especially if you live in a culture and a society where there are is more than one religion. In Italy is still dominated by Catholicism, but there are still others here as well. Yeah. So you can't be quite as you know, sure that yours is the right one. Yeah. <laughs> you have to make room for others too. Yeah, I grew up a Catholic and um Did you, yes. Um, my, um, my, my mom is, a, well, I guess you grew up in a Filipino household. Catholicism is an important part of one's life. Um, yeah. and it's still a big part of my mom's life. And I, in reading your book, I kept thinking about, um, cause you're always told, you say, by people, you know, um, people older than you, especially about, you know, um, one's lack of faith that that's always brought up. And <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know if I, I, I found uh, in reading your book um, redemption, if you will, <laughs> or, um, yes. or, or you know, the, the, the excuse that, that the, 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 you know, whatever path I'm taking is right. But it, it made me think of and it made me nostalgic in a way as well. I think I think that's the, what you just, just just talked about that um, in some instances you do wish that, that you you. Um, had community. Yeah, you, you you could you could yeah. tap into that if you will, um, and yeah. understand that, and and um, 
you know, at the same time, you're glad you, you don't have that in your life. But, um, yeah, I'm glad I don't have the restrictions in my life, I think. Yeah, I look but at I it. sometimes think the community would yeah. be very nice to, to be a part of. Sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and um, um, that's the thing that, that I enjoyed so much about the book was that there were these moments where I'd be reading it and then I'd put it down for a bit and um, reflect probably a little more than I want to <laughs> about <Right. Yes>. uh, <laughs> one's life. Um, so, so when you have to do that yourself as, you, as you're writing the book, do you find mm-hmm. that, um, that that introspection, that, that thinking, do you find, I mean... Can I do that? Yeah. Did you, do, you, do you enjoy that part of it, say? I, I loved it, yes. In fact, I think that was one of the great benefits of working on this book. It also just made me think about how our, you know, religion, especially, I don't know, the, the Catholic religion is a very artful religion as well, that it, it did embrace the visual arts, but also architecture. Like, think of churches. Yeah. There you know, unbelievably incredible things. I was just in Venice a week ago and visited a few churches that, you know, that look different from the churches in Rome and looking at some of the arched ceilings. And just to think about the the work, the craftsmanship, the artistry that goes into all of this, and it's all infused with this great sense of spirituality at the same time. So it's not just a beautiful thing. It's also got all kinds of meaning to it as well. And I, I loved that idea that you enter a church and you feel the atmosphere change around you and you have a sense that, you know, you're drawn to something that you don't completely understand. And uh, that mystery that is at the heart of, of any religion as well is also, it's, it's, a, it's a alluring, you know, it's very interesting to me that it, it affects even me, even though I'm not a religious person. Yeah. But I really loved that part of it, and I loved getting to just to see that that they're connected. They're so connected, the the art and the actual religion itself. So it, 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 there's another part of the book where you, you you write about the commodification of art, and and how it's mm-hmm. valued today, literally valued today with with a price. Um, and then I was thinking about that, and I mean it. It's it's always been like that in a way. I mean, you point out, uh, um, I guess it's Julius II, the Pope at the time. Um, yes. His motivation uh, was not altogether just, say, an appreciation of art. I mean, p- people that collect art today or buy art, um, they're, they're seeking s- some sort of status, aren't they? Some glory, um, a yes, touch of the... the yeah, a touch of the the artist's genius, if you will, thinking that it'll <laughs> that it'll transfer yeah. to them immortality. Certainly, in 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 that pope's case, right? Yes, I mean he really did realize that the arts would would um, you know he he used it to reflect his power, mm. so it reflect the church's power, but also his own power, and. I kept thinking about it. I kept thinking, like, oh, gosh, I should be able to solve this problem of art and money. <laughs> but, you know, you should, it's always been going on, and how do we ever solve it? You've always had some system of patronage, mm-hmm. that, and the arts are always compromised by it in some way. And the artist who is trying to just create a piece of work that that has some kind of meaning to it, the meaning is always, often subservient to the money, you know, how much did someone pay for this? How much did the gallery have to pay for that? 
painting that Picasso that's on the wall. You know, everyone knows these questions when a, a gallery purchases a new, you know, a new painting. Everyone knows how much it costs, or, or even just in the in the contemporary art market where pieces go on auction, or or there are, you know, trendy artists who whose work can be sold for astronomical sums. It's all unrelated in a way to what the art actually means, and. I find it fascinating that we've still never figured this out because how does the artist live otherwise, yeah. you know, except by commodifying their, their work? I guess they could do some other job, but, you know, many artists do, many writers do, many people creating anything have to do another job, but it's so interrelated. And certainly at that time, it was very interrelated. There was no way of separating it out. The money was... You know, the money caused the money that was needed to create the great art was also some of the things that that caused the downfall of of Catholicism during that period. Yeah, you can't you can't say that they're separate at all. Indeed, indeed. Um, how much do we need to know about Michelangelo? Um, because uh, the other interesting thing that I didn't know until I read your book was that that, that um, his work in the Sistine Chapel that re- represents two different points in his life. Is that right? Yes, yeah, that's right. No, it is interesting, too. I didn't really, you know, take that in that first either. So the ceiling was painted in um, 1508 to mm-hmm. 1512. And he, that was, you know, he was a relatively young man at that time. Uh, he didn't want to even do it. He was asked to, to paint the ceiling, but he kept saying, I'm not a painter, I'm a sculptor. He's also an architect. You know, painting was the thing he thought he was the least good at. But he persevered and ends up creating this incredible masterpiece on the ceiling. And it is weird, too. Like when you look at it, you realize maybe he thought he wasn't a painter because his work doesn't look like Raphael, you know, who was also painting at the same time, mm-hmm. who paints beautiful, refined images of people, whereas Michelangelo's people are kind of strangely lumpy and and they're always moving. They're always in the middle of an action. They're often huge and exaggerated. They're strange and, and compelling as well. So I find that kind of interesting. Maybe that comes from the, the fact that he didn't really feel like that was his strongest, uh, you know, his strongest skill. Mm-hmm. But then later he comes along like a good, you know, nearly 30 years later and paints the altar wall. And in between that time, we've had the challenge to Catholicism that came from Martin Luther, Luther and what came to be known as Protestantism. And also the sack of Rome, which was related to that, that happened during in 1527. So that you have a person who was young and enthusiastic and painting this incredible image on the ceiling. And then you have the much more sober artist at the, you know, he's not at the end of his life. He lived a long, long time. I think he was 89 when he died. But mm. he would have been in his 60s when he's painting the altar wall. And the world has changed, and he has changed so much at that time as well. And he was a very extremely devout Catholic. And so some of the criticisms that were made by Martin Luther and others really came home to him, and he did worry about, he worried about his church, and he worried about himself as well, that maybe he had not done the right things in his life, not being a good Christian, let alone, you know, Catholic. So you see that. You can definitely see the difference in in the work. 
And also, just the altar wall is on a wall, so you can mm-hmm. look at it so much more easily. You don't have to tilt your head up. So and, I often go, and if it's like once I get tired of looking at the ceiling, I turn and look at the wall because yeah. you can actually contemplate it differently. And, and do you see um, the skill of an artist change at all? Yes, I think so. I think it looks like, he, you know, I think, I mean, he was incredibly skilled in painting the ceiling as well. Yeah. It's just that I, I think that some of his odd people, it's not that he's not skilled, it's that he just has a very different way of presenting presenting his his vision yeah. than, than many of the other Renaissance painters of the time. But um, on the, the, yeah, on the altar wall, it is very controlled, his, his, um, representation of the people, of the images, of everything that you're looking at. It's, you can still tell it's the same artist, and you can tell that um, there's so much movement going on, and that seems to be just something that he adhered to throughout that project. I've seen other images that he's, he's made that are more static, but certainly everything that he did within, within the Sistine Chapel seemed to be all about movement. Hands moving, arms moving, muscles, you know, in, you know they're being contracted. It's quite, it's quite something. It's quite amazing to, um, to look at all of that and, you know, to realize that that's partly why you can't look away in some mm. ways. That you're trying to look at how it's all moving around, and yet yeah. it's just stuck on the wall. <laughs> yeah, I always find it odd that the people look like they were floating. Um, yeah. In the air, but then I guess if if you're looking at them uh, from the ground up, um, that would kind of make sense that they're in the sky, if you will. Um, yes, exactly. They're supposed to be in the in the sky. Yeah. Yes. I, I found it quite interesting the part of the book where you look at um, you, you were wondering about the neuroscience, how our brains work, essentially when um, we're reacting to art. They're very primal reactions to art, aren't they? I mean, um, some art, you know, drives people to weep, uh, to anger, even. Um, yes. And it's hard to know why. Like I think yeah. sometimes you can't know completely why something will affect you in, you know, in a way that is unexpected. But, I, you know, most people that I've talked to have described having an experience, an unexpected experience with a piece of art. And and certainly um, the idea that maybe it, it's partly just because we're, we, we, we think we're taking things in on one level, but our brains are so much more complicated than that. And so... Sometimes we're reacting to something that we don't completely understand. Like there was the study that I mentioned where they had looked at the brains of people as they're looking at part of the Sistine Chapel ceiling where where Adam and Eve are being expelled from the garden by an angel. And the angel has a sword and Adam has his hand up to try to deflect the blow. And that people, I guess it's like essentially they wince when they look at it yeah. because even though they know it's a painting, there's something about it that they still react to what's happening is what's happening to them. And it's something uncontrolled, something that you can't really control. So that might have something to do with why we have these unexpected responses to art sometimes. Even to painting, you know, we think yeah. that like, there's so much more now. You know, there's video everywhere. Like, the arts have, have changed so much. And painting has been around for so long. And yet, I still think... We still react to painting. It doesn't change. It doesn't become old. Yeah, That's even something that I think we have a great, a great reaction to. Yeah, even if it's something sort of abstract, if you will, or impressionistic. Um, yeah. 
we are so attracted to it by our eyes and our minds, um, much more than, say, a, a photograph. I mean, we, we do spend more time, perhaps, looking at a piece of art than or painting, especially, than, than, say, a photo. Yeah, and I think it's one of the few things in our lives, especially if we're not religious, that gives us an opportunity to have a reaction that isn't necessarily logical. You know, because mm. uh, we always go about everything, understanding everything, and yet with art, we don't always understand it. And I think it's healthy, it's good for us. It's like paintings and poetry to me seem linked in so many ways because poems work on that thing that work the same way. You know, you read a poem and it may not make a kind of logical sense, but there's there's the way the poem moves, the way it looks even on a page, or the way the rhythm flows through the poem and the words, and you realize it means something so much more than than just the words. There's something more to it. And so sometimes when you look at a painting, it means so much more than just the image that's on the surface, but you can't quite put your finger on it. But it's kind of exhilarating as well when you when you see that or have that experience or feel it. Yeah, you realize you've got to invest some faith of yourself in it. Yeah. Yeah, and also just, uh, you know, I'm no expert on on art either and I often think even experts on art aren't necessarily (laughs) experts on it but it's just that you have to let you have to allow yourself to have the experience and assume that it's valid Mm. whatever experience you're having is valid for you it may mean something completely different to the person who created the the painting but the experience of a painting is, is is unique and it's individual yeah, and that, that's the thing you write about in the book, that, that um, art doesn't have rules, if you will. That, um, yeah. I mean, you keep trying to impose rules on yeah. it. It evades them, though. Yeah, what, what, what's tasteful or what, what's worth, say, looking at and what, you know, what we can easily dismiss. Um, those and things what are, makes a good painting and yeah. what makes a bad painting. Those things are different for... Sometimes a bad painting eventually becomes something interesting and it has some quality yeah. to it that still gets you. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of history in in your book um, um, that you talk about, and 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 the thing, I mean, the work itself, the the, the paintings itself, you know, they depict uh, plague, strife, death, people fleeing. Uh, as I was reading that, I, I couldn't help but think that that your book was eerily timed. Um, oh. Did you find? You no, know, I was writing. Yeah. Did you find this as you were writing the, it? Uh, pandemic. Uh-huh. Well. Yeah, the funny thing was that I had really finished a good solid draft just before the pandemic happened. And I kept thinking, do I have to rethink all of this? Because some some of it felt different. So I did make some revisions because of that feeling. I can't actually even tell you what they were at this point. But, but just the sense that, you know, I would read and think, well, you know, they also experienced plague. And, but then you think, oh, my God, could you imagine what that was like? Because... We're having a pandemic where we're so shocked that we've got to stay indoors and we have to uh, avoid other people. But you realize that this sort of thing has gone on again and again at different times. And certainly in Italy, the plague was devastating. Mm-hmm. You know, it would would just sweep through and kill so many people. So it was even it was so much worse than what we were experiencing. But that was a that was a little surprise. Yeah, that was a shock for me. And then I, I did have an opportunity to revisit when the museum opened. It had only been opened a couple of days, and I was able to go back and visit it with so 
you know, fewer people in the room, but also just that sense that this place had been left empty and locked, you know, it had to be somewhat abandoned while mm-hmm. we all had to stay home. And that was, that was a bit of a, well, it, was, it gave me another, you know, level on which to reflect on it. Have you been back since? I've been a few times. I went uh, just a few weeks ago, in fact. I was there, and it's getting, it was, we've had weather that's been up and down, up and down. Of course, I ended up there on a really warm day mm-hmm. when it was quite crowded, more crowded than it usually would be in early May. And it was, but it was still, it was great. They had, they had, it's a strange room where sometimes it will just seem overwhelmingly crowded, and then suddenly there's a little pocket of space, and you have a few minutes to yourself. And actually, I got to sit down again, so that was nice to be able to sit and reflect on it again. But I also find that every time I go, it seems different to me, but also I can now reflect on how different it seems to me from when I first went. Because when I first went, it was as though I couldn't untangle one image from another. There was just there's so much going on in the ceiling that I couldn't really stop and look at anything. And now I go in and I know where the parts are. I look at it, and it feels like it's not as far away from me. It feels like it's come down closer <laughs> from the ceiling. I know it hasn't, but yeah. sometimes it feels that way, almost as though I can actually just, because I'm more familiar with it now, I can see it better. Um, what is it like for you, then, when, when you're in this place, and um, there are other people there, tourists especially, um, and not everybody that's there wants to be there? Well, you, can, you can tell. It, every time that I've been there, I, I see it and I have sympathy for people as well. Because, you know, it's it's also that you have to go through the whole museum before you finally get to the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. So you're tired by the time you get there. It's very crowded. And the um, the guards, tend, their tendency is to try to push you in. They're trying to keep people safe, mm-hmm. generally, because you have to look up. But they're also trying to move everyone towards the exit, which isn't really pleasant because you're trying to just look at something, but you're being gently pushed towards the exit the whole time. So that makes it a little, um, that makes it a bit hard. But you can also, I, I tend to stop and look at other people too to try to see, and often people will have the audio guide and that helps to, to focus you on something. Mm-hmm. But you can always tell that there's just a little bit of a struggle going on you know, what am I supposed to be looking at? What am I, why am I here? What am I seeing? Or, you know, sometimes you can see that some people are quite engaged and they might be quietly talking to the person they're with and pointing out parts of the ceiling because they, they know it and they've been there before. So I've seen that happen. I've, I've been there when there are school groups. And mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting to see because, of course, the kids couldn't care less, but their teacher has to, has to engage them and often... They do this by asking them to find things in the ceiling, and that's actually interesting because then you can see they'll slowly start to become more and more engaged, and they start to figure out how it works. Which are the parts? Oh, there's you know, there's Noah, there's the Ark, there's God in the center animating Adam, and uh, there's Adam and Eve over there, and they know the story, so they can start to put it together. And you can see how it goes from just being a, a you know a ceiling full of colors to being this in, discrete images. And so I often see that in the kids, with the school kids, the most. Your book is is, is also quite striking. The the, the photos in it, um, is, is especially, are um, quite vivid. Um, 
the the photographer is is that Douglas Cooper who took those those shots? Yes, Douglas Cooper. So he's um, a novelist as well from Toronto, uh-huh. and um, he wrote a few novels. But he's also uh, he's also a photographer, a really good photographer. And when we were thinking about including images in the book, I sent some of his photos to the publisher to take a look because I thought they they he just has a similar quality and we're friends so we talked about you know how he might shoot some images that would work in the book as well and I I felt like on the one hand his images are so striking that it's a bit risky because uh, you know it sets a tone but at the same time I felt like it is the tone that was he's just taking photographs that are the same tone as are in the book and the publisher agreed as well he felt that it was a good match so I'm so thrilled with the way they came out. I think they look really great. They really just add so much to the book and to the text. They do, yeah. I guess. And add more, like because you have the images of the artwork, mm-hmm. which are instructive and help you to see what we're what I'm writing about. But his images give you a sense of the city, yeah, and where the Sistine Chapel lives. Yeah, um, and I love the the um, I don't know how you describe this the um, the things in between the chapters. I guess the things that introduce each chapter. Um, oh yes. Whose idea was that? Was that your idea to do it that way? No, that's the designer who's this really brilliant woman from Calgary, excuse me, <clears throat> Natalie Olson. Uh-huh. So she pulled together the um you know we talked about different design elements and she took it away, came up with a few samples and then she pulled together this whole way of putting the book together so that it looks like one, it just, I think it's beautifully done, but it was her idea to put those images, which are sometimes a detail from something that's in that chapter, mm. a detail of the images from the Sistine Chapel, mostly, and one of them is not. And they're, they're grayed out somewhat so that they have a kind of moody quality to them. And I think they just work so well, just as a sort of plate to introduce each chapter. Yeah. Yeah, they're really beautiful. They are, yeah. Um so so as you write the book and, and you ponder these things that you're thinking about life itself really, um and and you, you finish uh the book, um I, I would assume that, that that you've got just as many questions now than than, uh, than when you started. Is that is that apt, say? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I mean questions about everything for yeah. sure. Um I do feel like it's I mean, it was a wonderful way to, it's, it's like the book itself was like a quest, in a sense, to understand something. And so I feel like I've taken the reader along with me on the quest to understand, firstly, what the Sistine Chapel itself means, but also what it means to to anyone now, a contemporary person going to have a look at it. What, what does it mean to someone who isn't a, a Christian or a Catholic? Mm-hmm. You know, all of that. So I felt like I had all of I was taking all of that with me, trying to understand it in a certain way, but I also feel like it's just opened up this, you know, an understanding or a, an approach, I suppose, to to viewing art, to looking at art, to understanding the history of art as well that I, I didn't really have before. I've always been a little bit haphazard in my my reading on art. I would read about the modernist period, then maybe read a little bit about the Renaissance, and I just feel like it's not all disconnected completely, but certainly understanding the chronology helps with that, but also just 
being allowing myself to take time and revisit images. You know, it's easier to revisit a painting sometimes in a in a church than it is to revisit the Sistine Chapel, but I've allowed myself to do that as well. And that revisiting, going back and seeing something again and again, then maybe going back and studying it a little bit, looking at it, reading about it, and then going back seeing it again. It's a, there's a kind of deepening, and I feel like I, you know, I, 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 I have those images sort of imprinted on my brain now, <laughs> so that I can think about them without really even opening a book anymore. Well, you, you've done a marvelous job at bringing us uh, the Sistine Chapel and and um, sharing stories of your life. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed uh, the book and and. Um, talking to you today. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you, uh, Jeannie. Um, I, I, I kept you longer than I said I would. I could talk all day with you. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> congrats, congratulations and continued good luck with the book. Uh, good night, Jeannie. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, good night. Then. The book is called All Things Move, Learning How to Look in the Sistine Chapel. It's uh, published by Biblioasis. Its author, Jeannie Marshall, joined me on the line from Rome in Vancouver, I'm Joseph Plunter.